It's like, hey, uh, stolen diamonds are played out. Okay, uh, stolen emeralds. Hey, but they came out of Michelle Pfeiffer's pussy, so that's that's worth a lot of money. Yeah, that's why everyone wants them. I mean, I can understand that. They're like, just let me, just let me sniff those emeralds just once, just real quick. <laughs> Smell them one time. <laughs> <laughs> just do a wave by. There's your blood diamond. Bleah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I put them in my diva cup. Welcome to Have You Seen This, the world's only podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten visual media. All discussions will be spoiler heavy. You have been warned. Welcome to Have You Seen This? It's Jen and... Tim. And making his triumphant return to the show, we have Sean Lamb Certificate Morris. Or Sean Death Lies Down on Broadway, if you prefer. Uh, Death Lies Down on Broadway sounds really cool. But Lamb Certificate is, like, not cool, which is more what I actually am. So we should go with Lamb Certificate. More accurate. (laughs) There's the sound cool, and then there's the actual, you know. Yeah. Uh, You know, we all have our... um, I think... A great man, Billy Joel, once had a song about how we all put on different uh, faces or personas. Masks, if you will. Yeah, it's called The Stranger, Jen. Whoops, wrong account. Yes, that is what I was <laughs> alluding to, Tim. All right, well, um, who wants to take a crack at telling the audience what movie we're talking about tonight? And it's uh, one that I enjoy quite a bit, personally. I don't know about you guys. You guys you guys start, and I'm going to finish my ramen. <laughs> Sounds good. Go ahead. We're talking about the documentary Into the Night about the singer Benny Mardones and his one hit that was a hit in two different decades. (laughs) (laughs) That is the slamming song. The thing in the 80s was like guys with names like Benny Mardones and like long mullets who like wrote like fire songs, but like you wouldn't be yeah, able to pick them out cool of a lineup. He's not yeah. in the Jersey Mafia, but his cousin is, or he knows somebody who is. He's just the guy that sings and hangs around him, but he never really made anything of himself. Yeah, he's in the three five mafia. Just mm, hair's breath. Shit, what's the name of the guy who did um St. Elmo's Fire? They're all like that guy. Yeah, mm. who was that guy? Like Krista Berg. Yeah. Eric Carmen kind of guys. His name was like Par John Parr or something. They all have like really generic names, like 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 Eric Carmen or like Peter Piazza or something. Yeah, Edgar. And then Winter. they went into the yeah, or they went into the entertainment industry. Yeah, Alan yeah. Parsons. Yeah. But anyway, for realsies, what are we talking about? <laughs> talking about Into the Night, the Benny Mardona song. Oh, I'm sorry. We're talking <laughs> about Into the Night. Now it's John Parr. You're correct. Ah. I was going to say Billy Squire, but he has a different song on the soundtrack. Yeah, they're similar. Into the Night right. is the 1985 uh, film starring uh, Jeff Goldblum and Michelle Pfeiffer, directed by... Criminally Negligent, yes. <laughs> a monster. <laughs> yes. Criminally Negligent, uh, father of... Father of a failed fail father. Yeah. Well, he yeah. was very successful. His son is a very successful rapist. Right. What did Matt, he, did he make a movie? I think I liked one movie that his name is on. Did he make Chronicle? Yes. Yeah. did like Chronicle, but that might just be Michael B. Jordan. It was the chronic part. Yeah. That's the, that's and he didn't really film that. They were filming it themselves. So what did he do? 
Well, uh, he, he had a famous father. He shook some trees over them while he filmed it. Oh, oh he was a set designer on Blair Witch, too. Is that it? Yes, that exactly. It? Oh, okay. Well, let's uh, let's forget the despicable son, as we all should do, and concentrate on the despicable father. Um, we Let, got... Let's concentrate on the three accidental deaths by helicopter. <laughs> Interestingly <laughs> enough, isn't Into the Night his first, like, not successful directorial effort? Like everything yeah. he had done, even the Twilight Zone thing where he killed three people and went to trial. Yeah, and um, in fact, uh, I think uh, this is according to the-numbers.com. Um, I'm sorry that I wasn't able to get uh, better research for all you listeners, but, um, you know, Corona's kind of got my hands tied right now. I can't get to the UCLA library or anything. But according to the-numbers.com, um, this had a budget of about $11 million. Um, it only pulled down about... worldwide, I believe. Um, So, yeah, this was a flop. Now, like, in 2020, that's, like, if the Doolittle movie did that, it was a success. But I don't know what happened with that. Yeah, that is, is like, a rounding error in today's movie. Like, we spent $11 on marketing. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Steve Carell campaign movie directed by John Stewart. Or the digital uh, dog effects cost eleven million dollars. Pretty much, yeah. yeah but so. um, suffice to say, this like in spite of um, some kind of ritzy locations and like a ton of stars, this did not make its money back. Yeah. So, so that there's the, there's the question: Why are we talking about this? Can we talk about <laughs> the cameos? Can well, we just, I, or do you want to just introduce the movie first? It seems like the only thing really worth talking about. Are they cameos? Because you have to be a very select group of people to go, ooh, that's Paul Mazursky. Like, you're yes. not going to be able to play this movie nationwide. You're going to go, ooh, Paul Mazursky. Ooh, Roger Vadim. Ooh, oh, my goodness. Yeah, like, well, it's, it's not like the Avengers movies where, like, oh, it's Spider-Man. <laughs> is it because, um, is it, like, John Lennon's just had these, you know, as a resource? Or is it, um, is it sort of like a weird flex, but okay, this is 100% John Landis indulging himself. Oh, okay. Like grabbing his Rolodex before they did it in the Ocean's Eleven movie. Like, let's do the thing. Mm-hmm. You know what this really is? And um, I believe this has been mentioned elsewhere. Um, the sheer number of industry cameos in this movie can also be interpreted as a kind of show of support for Landis in the wake of the Twilight Zone movie disaster, which happened in 1982. Didn't he go to court during the filming? Uh, I believe the trial was in 1987. I could be wrong. It's been a while since I read um, Outrageous Conduct, which is a very good book about uh, the Twilight Zone accident and its aftermath. I highly recommend it. It's really difficult to get a copy, though, so good luck to you. But it is worth getting. You don't say. Uh, One of the things that I took on, like, not a meta-narrative level is um, because if I were to introduce the movie briefly... Um, you know, you have Jeff Goldblum's character. He's an aerospace engineer who is unhappy with his life. He can't sleep. Um, his wife is cheating on him. Uh, he, you know, kind of goes to a job that he's checked out of. But, you know, he crosses paths with Michelle Pfeiffer through this, you know, gem heist. And he's kind of thrown into this whole other world of, you know, uh, uh, intrigue and, um, you know, double crossing and uh, whatever. It. it Cat burglarist kind of theft. Yeah, lots of guns. Guns and knives, thugs with beards. Uh, yeah. Money changing hands. Right. Powerful people. Yeah, high stakes drama. So the thing that 
I took away from this, randomly seeing all these celebrities show up, like I'm sort of uh, rationalizing it in while I'm watching the movie, thinking just as it's weird for us to suddenly be like, oh, there's Jim Henson taking a phone call like it's no big deal. I can see how it would be off-putting for the Jeff Goldblum character to be in this world where suddenly everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, soupy sales over there, whatever. It's something which um, I think W.D. Richter does a little better, where um, he will throw a character and, along with them, the audience into a situation which is obviously, like, way deeper than, you know, you can possibly get a grasp on in, you know, like, a few seconds. You know, it's kind of like how, uh, you know, a movie like... um, Big Trouble in Little China, like, really kind of starts in media res. Or, like, Buckaroo Banzai is like, wait a minute, what's happening? Like, we're we've well, suddenly, we're suddenly I, having a lot of story thrown at us, and we don't know what's going on. Now, well, W.D. Richter is very good at that. Um, it, this is, and um, Jeff Goldblum's character, Ed, is kind of thrown into a similar sort of situation in this movie. Like, it, it's not handled as well, though. Right. He well, doesn't say- really know what's happening until how long in the movie it's like 30 40 minutes before he finally goes okay stop and tell me what's going on i i think it's not until after he uh meets david bowie so that's an hour (laughs) yeah yeah that's like an hour into it before i really understood everything that was going on until david Bowie. (laughs) (laughs) well the thing that uh just one last point about the cameos thing and how that um is used to you create that that's that sort of out of place sense in the audience uh, that you would expect in the character is something that Jen and I were talking about earlier. It's watching um, the, the the current version of Little Women, and then suddenly Bob Odenkirk shows up, oh, and he you're did like, that? "Yeah," and you're like, "Oh, I I totally did not expect this beloved person to suddenly show up." And it's like you would feel the same way that the character would, where it's like, "Oh, hey, it's him. This is great." <laughs> So I get the I'm getting the impression that Tim didn't really care for the movie. Um, it's one of the I, I, I was like most of, of the audience. Yes. Um, as for Sean, Sean, I don't know how you felt about it. Here's my thing, Tim. Why didn't we uh, know about the Michelle Pfeiffer nudity in this? That is an excellent question. <laughs> we were prime connoisseurs of celebrity nudity databases in the late '90s, and they had every single nip slip upskirt thigh yeah, showing yeah yeah brow, I mean, shoulder for it and i was like michelle pfeiffer is naked and i had to look this up was this a body double it's like why would it be a body double she was barely famous in 19 yeah i mean like if you want to find you know you know that one topless shot of like you know jane horrocks or amy joe johnson like you know yeah you you would yeah especially in that movie with the chimp i i, I know a scene i, I right. couldn't tell you the minute but you know like um, oh my God! Did she fuck the chimp? I don't think so. Of course, she was in the, I think she was in the bathroom, and he came in the bathroom like, "Oh, I'm in the bathroom. I'll just take it." Oh, I don't. Yeah, but see, the chimp doesn't care though. There is a movie where Charlotte Rampling falls in love with a chimp. Ah, shit! That girl has to get some standards. <laughs> yeah, but but here's the, here's the thing. So like, yeah, we didn't know about Michelle Pfeiffer being you know nude in this in the same way that like. You know, Madonna's upskirt in Shanghai Surprise. That was completely unknown to me until like, you know, like four years ago. You haven't seen your bosoms? But that's <laughs> the thing. That should tell you something about this movie that it isn't a widely known nude scene, much like Shanghai Surprise. Like nobody knows about the upskirt in Shanghai Surprise. I didn't know yeah. about it because who's watched Shanghai I, Surprise? 
Yeah, I had to watch that multiple yeah. times before I noticed. And then you watched it multiple more times. I, I yeah, will not so... watch that multiple times. I don't care what's in it. Yeah, d- yeah. see, that's the same reason. Was this not movie even... even released on like a home video format? And it, was released, it, it was released on one VHS cassette, and then it was just passed around. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the broken I'm sure movie. it wasn't. It wasn't the when like DVDs were coming out. Let's put Into the Night on DVD right away. <laughs> Let's just put this into the trash. So yeah, like Uncle Scoopy didn't know about it. Yeah. So yeah, th- there's your deep cut, nude Michelle Pfeiffer, and then you know you can stop watching after 45 minutes. Yeah. No, you, no, she's in the shower at the end. You don't see anything, but she's no, you don't naked in the scene so you can imagine yeah i'm just mainly mad like for my adolescent self never got to see this because he would have loved to have seen michelle pfeiffer yeah and it's 80s michelle pfeiffer so she is of course perfect smoke show like you see why jeff goldblum's character would go to these extraordinary lengths for her at least like in a movie type of a situation yeah like this this predates her as catwoman even yes and yeah and i mean that's that's a big deal I, as well. I, I would risk it all for a Catwoman, even though she'd probably electrocute me in the process. So Yeah, you don't know how much you would be risking. I'm going to risk it all, all right. Speaking of pornography, Jen, this has a lot of uh, Los Angeles uh, in like the 80s and and then abouts. So I know that's yeah. porn for you. Well, and that's that might have a lot to do with why I, I really like this movie is like it's you get like. Yeah, a yeah really... the chance of that is 100 percent. You, I mean, not only does it open with a point of view approach to LAX, uh, um, yes, you see a lot of the Los Angeles area, like you know, you see Culver City, Hollywood, uh, Marina del Rey, yeah, Century City, um, a lot of places that you know I'm familiar with because I lived there for. Jesus Christ, how long did I live yeah. in L.A.? Don't they Never go to mind. Westwood at some point? I know someone brings up. Ew! Like, yeah, she had an apartment in Westwood. from her. Yeah, and I was like, please don't go to Westwood. <laughs> <laughs> it, maybe maybe she lived with Derek. Oh, she is, he's the manager even then he's in the 1985. Yeah. <laughs> he's like nine um, years old. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, this, is, it, this is the disillusioned Bruins crew right here. Right, yeah. Oh, and it's got but, the, um, the Ghosty Cal <laughs> video. Or a commercial in it too. That gets do a people, lot of play. Great artifact with that. I had forgotten all about that commercial. Do people remember Cal Worthington? Like, do well, people remember him? Do we need to explain who Cal Worthington is? People younger than us probably have no idea. But like, if you were, if you have memories of watching television in the eighties, you probably yeah. remember Cal Worthington. Yeah, yeah. If you lived in, yeah, like and um, his stunts and his commercials and his jingle. But this was yeah, like just, a Southern California thing, correct? Yeah, just the commercial, Pussy Cow. Just the commercial. And it was on for years. Yep. Well, Cal Worthington was a Southern California area car dealer who did his own commercials. It was Cal Worthington and his dog Spot. And he'd be doing something weird or he'd have like, he'd be like, they showed in the, yeah, in the movie. Ri- yeah, like riding a hippo. Yeah. Got like a giant, like a giant pig that he's following around. Yeah. Which I think was parodied in the forgotten uh, Ted Danson, Whoopi Goldberg movie, Made in America. It was. And I yes. saw that in the theater. So I could Dear test Lord. that through. I did. I was like, yeah, Will Smith and Neil Long. How bad could it be? <laughs> was it, 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 it was no black dog. Let's just put it that way. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> it, it was, was no it almost was bad, but It wasn't like a fan. I wasn't like disgusted or offended. It was yeah. just, man. 
Forget like the Ted Danson Friars Club blackface incident. Do people remember that Ted Danson and Whoopi Goldberg were briefly fucking? Yeah, the whole thing is disturbing. Yeah. Just the entire. Oh, yeah. I was crazy to think anyone would want nude photos of Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> what the? <laughs> um, um, but yeah, so um, that uh, that's. That's our little uh, reminiscence about Cal Worthington, who um, does does appear in the movie. They show his ads where he's doing like a uh, a barnstormer type stunt on a plane. Yeah, that's your uh, that's your factoid for the episode. It's like, yeah, it's the '80s right there. If you want to make a deal, go see Cal. Pussy if Cal. You make a deal, go see Cal. Pussy Cal. Did anybody actually get a pussy cow from Cal Worthington? I I wanted to know where this pussy cow. Did anybody was. get pussy from Cal Worthington? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I looked it up on, on <laughs> Scoopies. I looked it up on Richard's Realm. Couldn't find Pussy Cow. No, there's no Pussy Cow. <laughs> but I remember when Mystical first came out, I someone called him Cal. I was like, they should do a Mr. Cal ad. <laughs> Mr. Cal, Mr. Cal, Mr. Cal. Mr. Cal. <laughs> if you want to hop in your motherfucking shit, Mr. Cal. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what a, like, a catchphrase you would know. If you want to put your dick on the track, Mr. Cal. <laughs> For me, one that kind of nah, 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 Mr. Cal. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll take the chrome-plated tank in the corner, please. <laughs> but for me, this movie is kind of a nostalgic trip uh, through uh, Los Angeles. Um, there are some certain landmarks that don't exist anymore, like the the ship's diner that they uh, stop in, like closer to the end of the movie. Grimy. Um, yeah, and the thing I like is when the, the, the noir era, and this is kind of like a noir genre, right? Yeah, it, it was yeah. like screwball noir. It yeah, was a, yeah, it's a thing that happened, sort of. But it didn't. None of them were really successful, but they kept making them. It, right. One of them's gonna hit. Well, because they're all industry people, and these are these are things that they find hilarious. I'm sure. I bet well, when all these people watch this movie together, they're like, <laughs> "Remember that time when that actually happened?" Remember that time? Yeah, it <laughs> it really is like a incestuous Hollywood kind of thing because there is, you know, not only do you have all the director cameos, but then you have like a lot of like, uh, you know, we're on the periphery of a set, and all of these are like industry people. You know, like uh, Paul Mazursky mm-hmm. is like kind of like the I don't know if he's like he's like a producer, but he's like also a drug dealer or something like that. You know, but that's very typical L.A. Um, so it, yeah, you know, you can moonlight. It's one thing. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's very indulgent and maybe it is like very LA and like kind of an eye rolling way where it's just like, yes, like, yeah, the, the, the industry is so goddamn fascinating. Like, yes, we <laughs> all love so that. Hung out with a drug dealer. Like, yeah. And yeah, like we all love that old Abbott and Costello movie. Hey, you ever get anyone killed on set? <laughs> And I mean, this is like also totally a Landis thing because like he's like obsessed with all that old like, you know, all those universal monster movies, like to the point where like he, he wrote a book about movie monsters, I think. So, of course, there's a scene with uh, like, yes, yeah, having Costello, Costello meet Dracula. Yeah. Playing in the background. And they get billed in the movie, which is weird. I also wonder if it was maybe like you think like me decapitating three people is bad. You should see what I have to deal with going around Los Angeles trying to film a movie. I don't know. <laughs> and, like it's dangerous all the time i could have been shot and um you know speaking of indulgence um landis does give himself a part in the film um actually it's like actually pretty good i think it's a perfectly fine part like at first when he shows up i was um, like what the hell is he doing in this but i was like the director's a murderer in the movie and he murders someone in real life <laughs> that's see, it's true. like poetry 
I don't know, like, you know, when you get brand, when you get branded as a negligent murderer, like maybe you just kind of got to lean into it and be like, no, I will commit murder on camera. Yeah. My impression when Landis first showed up on screen is like, oh, my God, he's terrible on camera because like he kind of looks like he doesn't quite know how to integrate in the scene, you know, because like he's, you know, he plays one of the Savak henchmen like uh persian guys and they're all screaming in farsi or whatever they're like synchronized like hitmen yeah yeah like and 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 they're tough to get a handle on at first because they kind of look like the like middle eastern mexican mafia cartel i really wasn't sure where they were from at first i thought they were mexicans at first and i thought they were speaking spanish and i'm like oh no they're just doing bad european accents well as it turns out they're working um for a very powerful Iranian person who we made at the end of the movie. Um, and so they're actually from Glendale. Westwood. Or San Fernando Valley. No, but um, they are, and David Bowie very helpfully explains this to us later in the movie. He's um, fantastic. They yeah, are, it's nice of him to show up. Hello, I, I'm sure you're confused by all this. Let me explain. You know, these are these are Iranian, specifically they're Savak, which is the Iranian secret police the CIA helped create this uh, secret police force and they went on to do a lot of like really cool secret police shit like, uh, you know, extrajudicial murder and torture, um, much like they do in, in this movie. So, yeah, hmm. real deal bad guys. I mean, but, they, but, they were done or they were on break, so they decided to like take the act on the road. I mean, aren't they aren't they technically like repatriating a cultural artifact that would make them the good guys? I mean, well, if you think about it, yeah, I mean... This, this, I mean, that's always the the question here is where did this diamond really come from? Maybe you should put it back. But right, yeah. they didn't have a legal claim to it either. Wasn't it originally from some tomb? Yeah, well, I mean, Mich- Michelle Pfeiffer does, you know, point out, she's like, I'm one of the bad guys, which they, they you know, they kind of, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 they, they pick up that thread and then drop it. But it's like, yeah, she's, she, she's, you know, the, um, she was working with the bad guys. She was right. for hire. She wasn't yeah. like the mastermind. Well, yeah, contextually, she's, a, she's more a femme fatale than a damsel in distress. Well, contextually, this she says this to uh, to Goldblum because uh, she's explained to him why she can't go to the police. But you know, as you guys point out, you know, because she did smuggle emeralds, which are part of a priceless cultural heritage. Um, yeah, you know, you could say like, oh yeah, you actually are one of the bad guys. Yeah. Don't just go, waiting go. for someone to walk in and go, this belongs in a museum. <laughs> and and so, not just because so they were in Michelle Pfeiffer's uh, vagina. Right. Yeah, it's a good start. Did we say, like, what the basic plot was? I don't even remember. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I covered it in broad strokes. That's like, it's a heist. There's some stuff. There's some stolen things. And Oh, yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. not important is the, the takeaway. Well, it's just enjoy the ride. Yeah. Yeah, the ride through Southern California. I'm just thinking right. of the time period, 1985, as far as like big cities, big city culture and like business culture was booming and definitely on the upswing. And Wall Street was about to get really annoying. It wasn't quite there yet, but there was a lot of upwardly mobile businessmen and a lot of opulent. And there's kind of some of that in like, the uh, the hitmen going around, they're kind of like gaudy opulence, but they're like kind of still crass about it. Yeah, they found a twenty four hour tailor. I don't know yeah, how they managed that. They're like, what's going on in there? Well, they just got the guy to open up. Yeah, they're right. kind of um, they're kind of like the nine eleven hijackers because they're like, well, we're here, we might as well get like you know bespoke suits and pussy. Through some L A hedonism, but unfortunately, it's like West L A hedonism, so they just like go to a store in Beverly Hills and hire some some women. 
To be fair, that is a very L.A. tourist thing to do is be like, ooh, let's go to Rodeo Drive. Well, not the rent out of like a Beverly Hills store and like hire some strippers. But yeah. 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 I mean, they, you know, Tiffany's is featured prominently in there. Yeah. So but like um, most of the depictions of like people working, like Americans working are usually like. Oh, I got a job. I'm in big business now. Like they're like working girl. Like I'm making working my way up, or like I'm in. I'm going moving up. And this is more like Brazil, where he's like, I'm in a damn. I'm, I'm dead. I work yeah, in an office. I, I, yeah, I work like in they didn't really do like working in an office in the '80s wasn't. I'm dead most of the time. That didn't really start until okay, maybe yeah. Joe versus Volcano, but that's the late '80s. Right. Usually uh, jobs like this are like. He would be like in war games. They would be like the guys that solved everything. Yeah, or Tron, like that endless expanse of cubicles. Although, like in hindsight, holy hell, I would love to have a cubicle. Three walls. It's not bad. What am I management now? Yeah. Well, because yeah, he's 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 white collar, but not like a typical like movie white collar job. He's like an aerospace engineer. So yeah, um, he's a skilled professional. He's probably pulling down good coin. I'm sure he is. But yeah. I love, um, I absolutely love the location for his house. I was going to say, where is he living? Like, by that the... Is a de- yeah, that is a dead-end street that he lives on. I know on. where that is. It's like, um, it's, it's very south near... It's by. by the freeway. Like, when, like, the whole opening, when he gets out of his, not the opening, but when he first leaves the house to go yeah. on his adventure... He like drives out into the shed, like he immediately like pulls out of his house and turns, and he's under the underpass. I'm like, and then the next scene, he's like an, under another underpass. I'm like, did he just turn the corner? That's like Sawtell. The from, house like, itself. It's awful neighborhood. The house itself is in the Culver City area. I know, I know the general area it's in. It's really near um, what used to be the Fox Hills Mall. It's like I don't know what they call it now, but now that Westfield bought it up. Maybe Baldwin Hills, something like. Yeah, and it's it's like a typical like you know little bitty like L.A. bungalow fighting line right? between Culver City and South Central. Yeah, like right under, right under a fucking freeway overpass. Um, I looked up the the actual house's address is on IMDb, so I went ahead and looked it up. I think it it um last sold in 2011 for five hundred thousand um, dollars. It's that- freeway adjacent. It would probably be closer to a million now, which is that should tell you something. With all the noise, what's well, Los Angeles? Yeah, that's mm. LA. What's West but, LA? But, I mean, uh, Crenshaw's like that now. That's just worth money, Dave. Yeah, they don't call it South Central anymore. It's it's Southern LA. Southern LA, yeah. But, oh um, my god, <laughs> New North Central. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> but I really love the the imagery of the house because it really just sums up his life in a nutshell it's like yeah you know he has shelter but like his life like really kind of sucks and like his his wife is fucking a co-worker i think as he discovers later on yeah i mean it's a small life in shadow of much bigger things much, much bigger infrastructure i think the freeways illustrate that i also like that he's an aerospace engineer which is uh you know a job where a lot can go wrong but he can't focus at all. Yeah, which is why they have sleep. a synchronization issue. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who's the director yeah, cameo Cronenberg's got a synchronization. Cronenberg is it. It's just it's like so these random. are cameos that people are gonna be like, ooh, even in nineteen eighty five, I don't think a large group of people will go, ooh, David Cronenberg. Yeah, you pretty much have to be watching it now and be like, what the I think the only cameo here? that would like really pop out is Bowie. Yeah. Or you know, what's his name? Uh Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Aykroyd shows up at the beginning. 
But I don't like um this was really kind of a niche thing to be into in like 85. Like you had you would have to be like some kind of like Fangoria and variety reader to get this. Like you didn't <laughs> And you're saying that this movie didn't perform well? <laughs> Like, I, like that, that Venn diagram is a single point. And yeah. It, and I mean, it is John I Landis. there was a review that said something about this is a movie for, like, the people that watch their friends' movies in their screening rooms. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Well. That's pretty good. Well, no one, yeah, there you have it. Thanks for listening. No one accused the Landis family <laughs> of being in touch with the working class. Well, who else wanted to work with him then besides Eddie Murphy and Michael Jackson? He had to get who he could find. <laughs> it's like only my friends want to work with me. No one else will play with me. Never wonder why that is. Well, that's the thing, like because um, while the um, you know the Twilight Zone accident is you know horrible to any like you know right-minded person, but you know when most of your friends are like a bunch of like industry douchebags who'd be like, and "Wow, that could have yeah. been me. That could have been my set." You know, mm. I could have like. Been I hope they never who- find out that I'm involved in this like sex trafficking ring or my. <laughs> my cocaine deals Whew, that would be terrible right yeah. so <laughs> that other director that uh got uh convicted of uh what uh sex with a minor on quaaludes what happened to him they gave but... him another oscar oh okay cool <laughs> and everyone applauded him but um one thing that i wanted to go back to that sean mentioned was um i think sean you were saying that like um this movie really has the feel of you know it is very 80s and these are like booming economic times and uh connected to that is uh, a line that goldblum says near the end when he finally like finds out like what prompted this entire you know escapade he says this is all about a real estate deal so trite like really all this is going on because of it yeah but it is so truthful because it's these like money deals that that involves that large of a transaction something bad is going to happen like a body's going to get buried somebody's going to get shit on i mean that's basically yeah it's 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 like it's like who framed roger rabbit all over again Mm -hmm. yeah and because because these things that um you know that really are evil and you know that end up like deforming our lives like all these pieces that are moved by like wealthy players like you know way beyond where we can see them yeah, well, well, I like, tell you what, the, I got I got some bad news about the Department of Water and Power. Then, like, anyway, um, shit, I gotta make my point again. Um, well, my point is, is that it really, it really is apt because there are all these like power plays and business deals that happen like beyond where like us poor plebeians can see them, but they end up like significantly deforming our lives in a really evil way. I don't think that Landis realized this when he wrote it, but, no, but I think he thought it was cool or like just some like dangerous situation or something he's vaguely aware of. Yeah. The thing mm-hmm. is, it's the kind of thing where it's like most people, you know, if you read about like a crooked real estate deal where like a bunch of people got killed as a result of it, you know, like you might read about it in like vanity fair and you'd be like, damn, that story sure was crazy. But most people like, don't really think about the implications of that stuff. Like nobody thinks about like, Oh, like, what is it about our system, like, the structure that we live in that leads to stuff like this again and again and again? Like, why all these stories right. of Vanity Fair about, like, people fucking getting killed over real estate? Yeah, that was the, the point that I wanted to bring up about uh, the Department of Water and Power, because it's like, you know, contracts, like, not going to, 
you know, contractors or you know builders uh, who are qualified or maybe can do it cheaper. It's going to like you know people's friends or you know a Chinese consortium that you know bought the mayor some Katy Perry tickets or something like that. Yeah, fuck it's you, all, Garcetti. You know, fuck you, Garcetti. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it's all or, or maybe not the mayor, but you know some other you know figurehead that I can't be bothered to learn like their name of, which is why this continues to happen. But you know, it's it's mm-hmm. as as they as they would say in uh, Goodfellas, real greaseball stuff. <laughs> Yeah, and maybe that's kind of why, in this case, I know Tim, like, I kind of think the movie works in some ways and doesn't work in other ways. For me, I think, if you call it a screwball noir, I think the noir worked better for me, because it seemed like, oh, this is really dark. Yes. And I was like, I got that it was really dark, and I was just disturbed, like, like, the whole time, I'm like, okay, he's going to get into an adventure because I've seen After Hours, which came out, like, the same year and had a very similar... I don't think Griffin Dunn was in Mortal Peril. He might yeah, have. that's the difference. But it's a similar... It's a very similar filmmaking style, very similar, like, but, like, it's the New York version. I want to say that End of the Night is, like, the Under Siege 2 to After Hours is Goldeneye. It's very similar premises. <laughs> they came out almost at the exact same time. And you wonder out who you wonder who took the idea from who first. Yeah, well, one is it, by a yeah, master was, of his craft, and the other is by, a, you know, albeit another master, but, like, a more puerile one. Under Siege 2 fucking bangs. The only oh, Captain Michael um, movie worth watching, Morris Chestnut. Fair enough. Fantastic. I mean, I like this movie. <laughs> Papers, the prepared mind. Uh, to mention something that you said, Sean, um, like I think you were alluding to. Um, I was like, the comedy think... doesn't really work because it's so dark to me. This is a comedy. I really wanted to get to that because one of the things which put me off about this movie when I first saw it many years ago was uh, I was much younger. Was the the wild tone shifts, and I want to get your guys's opinion on on that because it is a very uh, tonally strange movie. Uh, well, it, it more the climactic action is a is a shootout at LAX, a brutal bloodbath. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Well, even the yeah. first killing, because I'm thinking he's going to, like I was saying, I think he's going to get into an after style adventure. He's going to be, like, running around. It's going to be pimps, and there's going to be, mm-hmm. like, some knife fights. You're going to get in, like, a barroom brawl or something. And he's just chilling in an airport parking lot, and unbeknownst to him, like, down, like, a few aisles down, like, Michelle Pfeiffer's friend just gets knifed the fuck up. And yeah. it's a brutal killing. It's not like, oh, he got, he's down. It, it's, yeah. It's yeah. very and Landis gives himself the opportunity to manhandle Michelle Pfeiffer in that scene. Yeah, I'm sure that wasn't <laughs> an accident. Yeah. The the other thing is, uh, sh- uh shoot, nah, I I lost where I was going with it. I don't know, Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> name check that. I think what put audiences off in a lot of respects was the kind of tone of it, where you have like, you know, kind of typical. Landis style comedy, which might have fit in a movie like The Blues Brothers, albeit like on a yeah. on a smaller scale. Yeah, that definitely works. But awful, mixed... awful like greaseball killings. Right, it's comedy mixed with like just gore. The scene which comes to my mind is when um, is it Mazursky's pad in uh, Malibu. He goes back with his uh, TV star <laughs> girlfriend. Yes, um, they get attacked by the by the. That was the, the one I was thinking of too. 
Yeah, they get attacked yeah. by the Iranian thugs. She makes a run for it, and then they brutally drown her in the ocean. But before they drown her, there's a shot of them very carefully, like, taking off their expensive watches before running into the water after her. Yeah, so they can murder this the woman. The house they're in to, like, to escape, and they run after her, and they're, like, like I said, they're, like, synchronized swimmers, but they're synchronized hitmen. So even their, like, criminal, like, bumbling pratfalls are synchronized. Yeah, it's kind of like a Benny Hill sketch. Yeah. When they all run into a behind them, I'm like, oh, this is funny. And then they fucking, like, drown her in the ocean. Yeah, like, right after that. Killed. I'm like, yeah, yeah. these guys are I don't funny. remember any yeah. Benny Hill sketches that ended with a drowning. So. Is yeah. there a scene where they're, like, ransacking? That's the scene where they're ransacking the boat. It sounds like Benny Hill's playing in the background, or it's, like, Benny Hill-type music. And yeah. they're, like, quick ransacking the place, so it makes it seem like, oh, it's funny. They're like, they're, these guys yeah. are, these guys after, are, I don't want to After he shot the guy's bird, yeah. Yeah, I will oh, say though, assholes. they shot the yeah. dog in the elevator. I'm like, where's John Wick? Yeah, they shot the hell out of that dog too. Yeah, <laughs> they filled that dog full of lead. <laughs> Don't let me see yeah. shoot no dogs. Oh my god. I I will say, and you know, just Broke because the Emmy he's, up. Yeah. I like that part where they were like looking for the diamond in the Emmy, and they just ripped the Emmy apart. Yeah, it takes the top off. Yeah, of and you know, if you're an industry person, yeah, that would really hurt. I, I do like, though, and, you know, maybe it's because he has this kind of otherworldly charisma, but it is very nice when, uh, you know, I thought it was delightful when, you know, David Bowie will very politely, you know, open Jeff Goldblum's mouth and then very politely put now it that was the it. porn part for me. That was very Yeah, specific. it's like if anyone can sell, <laughs> I had to pause I'm, it I'm going that. to threaten your life, it's Bowie. I was like, if, if Bowie put a gun in my mouth, I'm like, well, I probably deserve this. Yeah, I'd be like, oh, I wonder what he's going with that. this. <laughs> and it's a very small part that very in a very Bowie-like fashion, he makes a huge impression in. He's outstanding, yeah. and also yeah, kind of like uh, a, you know, he Tesla does the, the exposition, so that helps him as well. They're like, I like this guy. He told me what's happening. Yeah, and then um, because he's got uh, then he went to go to do some coke off of Iman. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah, living and the then life. He's only got a couple of scenes, and then he has a uh, like he has a struggle with uh, of all people, rockabilly musician Carl Perkins in his only feature role. That's based on their real life feud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't life know they imitates had beef. art, or vice versa. Went back thirty years. <laughs> you know, I listened to that whole song about what's beef, and I never figured out what the fuck beef is. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's because uh, you know, was it? Forget it. I can't think of the name. Beef is when you make a mon start your Jeep. <laughs> Jeez. I think, um, but I don't know, like, Tim, how did the tone of the movie sit with you? Well, I, I mean, I think that the bloodbath at the end was probably the, like, indicative of the overall, uh, you know, tonal shifts. Because, I mean, there's something you get here and there. But, like, at the end, be like, this movie is trying to be two different things. Or maybe, you know, Landis just, you know, has a much more casual attitude towards bloodshed. Like... You know, you you watch Blues Brothers and you don't automatically assume that there are, you know, 108 maimings going on in each of these car crashes. But right. you know, it's, it's definitely in a, in a different spirit. No, yeah. um, People are getting murked. Left and right. yeah. <laughs> it is so funny in Blues Brothers, like the scale of the violence, but it's cartoonish. Right. And then in yeah, it's it's yeah, I wouldn't say it's violence. It's mayhem. Like, yeah, it's, it's different. It's, like, it's, it's a lighter like, touch. Yeah. Can you imagine if Jake and Elwood like fucking cut some guy's throat in Blues Brothers? Like, <laughs> right? Or like those two <laughs> cops in like Car Fifty Five that are on their tail, and then at some point, like you know, Elwood just like shoots both of them in the face. 
Yeah, or if they um, like you run know, into a they... dog in an elevator and they just unload their clips at them. Yeah, yeah. like if the the cops like when they like you know when they and John Candy like go into that truck and crash like if it had just ended up like red asphalt where their bodies were torn apart uh, <laughs> they crawl out all bloody yeah like, like John Candy's just been fucking decapitated yeah and like yeah, yeah I think he was going I think in a way it's he was kind of going for something ahead of its time but he didn't know how to make it Right. I don't know. Because, like, yeah. what, I mean, the thing that he was trying to make was very successful in the 90s when it was just, I called them violence farces, like the terror, like when you did your Tarantino style movies. Like, mm-hmm. those movies yeah. are very violent and very funny. And right. they're, they're able to balance the tone pretty well. Some of them, not yeah. like, not all the ripoffs, but yeah. some yeah, of them are just, like. Yeah, another kind of, uh, you know, like wound too tight, sort of, sort of industry insider type director i think you're right sean because this was 10 years before i just shot marvin in the face yeah which is hilarious yeah i remember laughing so hard in the theater yeah it was so funny (laughs) shot marvin in the face there was uh i think the early days of twitter when no one was following me i would say things like uh, a lot of lines in Pulp Fiction uh, would be just—you could just use the line as a porn li- in a porn movie, you know, where like I shot Marvin in the face. <laughs> I will never yeah. forgive um, you for this shit. This is a fucked up, repugnant shit. Like you could just put that in a porn movie. Yeah, every time you know, every time I test skull, I turn to a mushroom cloud lane motherfucker, motherfucker. <laughs> um, it's funny. I, like... Yeah, and there are some like fun lines too, like you know when he's on set and the director comes by. His assistant is like, this or, you know, I want you to look at these. This or this. He's like, they're both shit. And he's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Whole industry, like, everything we're making is trash. Just pick one. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was, like, also the physical comedy of, like, uh, you know, Jeff Goldblum falling through several, like, props or facades. Like, he tries to use a fake phone. That, to me, I don't think that landed for me. I think it was too pratfally compared to, like, there had already been some brutal violence. And, like, you're, I, it seemed like, I don't know if this was an acting choice because he had insomnia and hadn't slept, but it seemed like Jeff Goldblum was kind of sleepwalking through this mortal city. Like, you're in mortal peril. And I guess maybe he didn't know yet, or he was just, like, he's in a dream-like state and he doesn't get it. But he was just like, oh, this is weird. Yeah, I agree. It is kind of a, it's it's a little bit of a flat performance for, especially for someone like Goldblum. That seems like just Jeff Goldblum being Jeff Goldblum because, in particular, um, like he has like, you know, I I know it's it, it's beneath comment, but he has like some kind of weird line reads. Um, yeah, it's, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but one of them in particular stood out to me because there's a because he says at one point he's like, "Look, I don't need this shit," but the way he says it, it's like, "Look, I don't need this shit." It looks like, like I can't be bothered. Yeah, or it's like, look, I don't need this shit, or maybe I do. Yeah, maybe you I tell me. You tell me, yeah. Because the whole point of this is he was supposed to go out and get adventure, and adventure basically ran to him in the parking lot. It's very weird that when, also when he says to Michelle Pfeiffer, nature uh, finds a way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, so, I don't uh... know if he had the best, I don't know if she liked him or if they got along that well. I mean, he's had chemistry with a lot of his co-stars, obviously, Gina Davis. Uh, mm-hmm. He had good chemistry with Emma Thompson in uh, Tall Guy. He has chemistry with a lot of his fans, too, I hear. Uh, yes, he does. Larry Fishburne <laughs> he had a lot of chemistry with in Deep Cover. <laughs> Did they fuck? No, but they had a lot of uh, intimate sexual conversations. 
That's awesome. Jeff Goldblum be like, why do I like fucking black women so much? And Larry Fishburne would say, maybe you feel like you're fucking a slave. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, that's why I like hanging out with you. And she said, and Jeff Goldblum would go, you ever been with two women at once? And he would go, yeah, your mother and your father. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum would go, ooh, did my mom get buck wild on you? They had a great, they had a great back and forth in deep cover. That's awesome. It's, it's, it's a delight. They had a delightful, it's the first um, romance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, I. Although my my favorite, uh, you know, role though for uh, Lawrence Fisherman though it does have to be Cowboy Curtis. Oh, it's fan. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot really of the same lines in, too. He's also really good in King of New York. If you've ever seen that, it was like the pre New Jack City, directed by Abel Ferrara. Oh, we should talk about New Jack City. We, I we think should. people know about New Jack City. I don't know how forgotten <laughs> New Jack. Is there like a knockoff New Jack City that we could talk about? Yeah. <laughs> well, you talk about King of New York, which was pre New Jack City. Um, Snipes. He was still Larry then. Fishburne, David Caruso's in it, and it's like crooked cops. Oh yeah, David Caruso from Hudson Hawk. Um, you know, I just want to tell. I just want to tell the audience. Um, you know, speaking of Lawrence Fishburne, I have been enjoying him very much in this TV show. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but it's called Hannibal, and it's on Netflix right now. Is Lawrence okay. Fishburne on that too? You didn't know you didn't know he's on Hannibal. Yeah, he is. I thought he was just getting blackish paychecks. <laughs> the joke is that fucking everybody knows Hannibal except Sean. Well, never mind. Well, and me. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> why why I would I watch Hannibal? Watching Godfather of Harlem, which is like power, but set in the civil rights era and with like better actors. It's like powder <laughs> set in the civil rights era. Not powder. Powder. <laughs> but Ooh, I mean, can you imagine? Talk about Victor Salva. Um. Anyway, uh, where were we with Into the Night? Jeff Goldblum. Yes. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. Maybe he does still like, deserve this shit. In the beginning, it seems like he's like, am I dreaming? Is this really happening? And it's like, he doesn't seem like he's in danger. And I also wonder, like, maybe he, and like, by the end, it seems like he's a bad, like, you're an aerospace engineer. Like, why are you so calm around these, like, murderous real estate yeah, and, and another Maybe point that I would sociopath. like to quibble with. My idea yeah. was that it's because he's taller than them. So, but like, the, he's not intimidated yeah. by a single person in Hollywood. Like, he's shrimps. Yeah, if they had put Tim Robbins as an antagonist, then you'd have something. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, if you, like, one of the things that struck me watching this movie again, and, you know, I think probably I'm the only one, like, who'll defend this movie, but um, one of the things... One of the things about Goldblum's character is that he displays an unexpected grace under pressure and an ability to very coolly improvise, which is what makes him an ally to Diana Michelle Pfeiffer's character. And I think it, maybe that's why, because he is There's able to continuously... There's a lot of improvisation because, in aerospace, yes. Be, <laughs> because he's able to continuously kind of like help her out of trouble, and that's you know that makes her drawn to him. Um, but you know, I think Tim thinks I'm being ridiculous, but you know, no, I'm aerospace, just making a joke. Uh, an aerospace engineer is, you know, is probably going to be like pretty, you know, intelligent and, you know, maybe even able to improvise, but just saying, well, well we see him I don't fucking know. he's not really that good at his job, <laughs> mainly because he hasn't slept. So it makes me wonder if he's not good at his job because he hasn't slept. How is he so good at like all these negotiations if he still has not slept? Now, here's here's what I want to know because uh, speaking of sleep, there's a point where uh, Michelle Pfeiffer takes a nine hour nap in the sewer. 
in a sewer. Yeah, but to start, like, the way that this is framed initially is Dan Aykroyd says, um, hop a flight to Vegas, go, you know, uh, goof off, get it out of your system, and then fly back in the morning, and you get to do all this before your wife wakes up. And I take that as the jumping off point for this little adventure. You know, it's like a self-contained, you know, one crazy night No, this is two days. Yeah, but then Michelle Pfeiffer takes a nap, and I'm like, Jeff Goldblum has to go to work. No, like, he doesn't. doesn't his wife it's, it's wonder Saturday. where he is? I don't know. Oh it's, oh, it's Saturday. Yeah, but I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, like you establish confines of this premise, and then you just kind of dismiss them when yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer like sleeps. One crazy night to be continued. Like, we're going to do this. It's like Into the Woods. Where they're like, we would keep going, but the sun's coming up, so we gotta wait till the sun goes down, so we can continue this nocturnal journey. Yeah, he's been awake well, for like sixty hours by the end of this. Well, additionally, maybe he has fatal familial insomnia. Um, yeah, that would have been no, my first assumption. Yeah, movie. yeah, that and um, that is, you know, at least it ties that up. That he does finally get to sleep. It's it's. Have I been asleep longer than this- I've been tired? Early? <laughs> it's like but you know the, Hudson Hawk getting his cappuccino that, at the end. But the flip side of that is like, what are they going to do? Like, cut back to his coworkers being like, "Where's Ed today?" Cut to his wife saying, "Oh, good, I can fuck my work boyfriend." In a lot of these, <laughs> in a lot of these movies like this, because this genre did have legs, because a people in the industry wanted to see themselves in like these high-profile, like, criminal activities, but also it was just, like, an easy, cheap thing to film. So they would keep doing these, like, one crazy night things in, in many different genres. I always like to bring up Who's That Girl? Because it's, it is. That's what it is. But there's always a scene where, like, you see them at the beginning and they're all put together and they're, like, their regular life and then they're all fucked yeah. up and then in the middle they, like, run into, like, either their coworker or their fiancé or their mother-in-law and they see him, like, in the middle of this madness and they're like, what's, what's happened to you? Where have you become? And he never runs in there. Like, he didn't see Dan Aykroyd again. Yeah. So, like, like there's his... no one there to, like, from his other life to go, what have you been up to? And that's, I think it's missing. Yeah. To, it's... Like, see, like, how, di- like... Because he just Maybe, seems like the yeah. same guy. Yeah, they established that He's just like, I was this guy who couldn't sleep and couldn't get shit done and working on this guy that can't sleep, but I get shit done here. It, Which kind of begs the question, why did he need to be a guy who doesn't sleep? Or why did he need that job? Yeah, or other than to have it pay off at the end. Well, it was so he could buy that great house in Culver City. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, under the freeway, though. I don't know. That 600-square-foot bungalow. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a short commute to like Long Beach. Yeah, I don't know how much of that is Jeff Goldblum and how much of that is that character wasn't that interesting to me. Michelle Pfeiffer is just very interesting and also she's gorgeous at this point. So I'm just, I was, I liked following her around. She is kind of a manic pixie dream girl in a way because she's just like, she's not really in distress. She just kind of like caused her own problem and like needed help out of it. Yeah, she's trouble. Like, I, yeah, like, and the character is very interesting to me because it's really clear from the movie that she, this is a very beautiful girl who is able to a degree to get things because she is very beautiful, you know, which is why, you know, she had like, she was the mistress of like a very rich and powerful man. You know, she's able to like, she's able to talk her way into a crime scene because like, oh, I need to get my friend's coat. <laughs> yeah, the um uh what is it her her brother the the Elvis yeah, the Elvis impersonator. Yeah, cuz he like has it out with her about um she needs her car and he's like, "Well, I rented it to such and such and he's up in, you know, the Bay Area." 
And and she's like, you can't just rent it out. It's like a $60,000 card. He's like, Jack gave it to you. It didn't cost you a thing. So that right. is really telling about, you know, what this woman's, you know, how this woman navigates, you know, her life. Yeah. And the part where she says, um, you know, at the end of their fight, when she says, Elvis wouldn't do what you're doing right now. I knew Elvis. And, you know, he wouldn't do this. And I was like, yeah, yeah this is absolutely the kind of woman that Elvis would have been interested in meeting. If he's and I love that the brother yeah. said. I knew Elvis. You just fucked him. Right. Yeah. That's... <laughs> they both knew Elvis in their own special way, I think. And in that way, like, she's a novel character in that she isn't, you know, she isn't even a hooker with a heart of gold. She's a, you know, con artist, I guess. She's just, like, stumbling not... through, like, tragic situations. She is the kind of woman you would meet in L.A., ask me how I know. but she's not um yeah because she isn't a con artist because it's she doesn't like she doesn't necessarily she doesn't seek to you know make a big score or anything like that she is seeking uh comfort basically like she's yeah she finds ways to get people to take care of her she wants to be taken care of yeah and that's what jeff goldblum's character steps in for yeah he does do it better than everyone else aside from jack he is yeah Jack played now, by Richard Farnsworth. Yes. And uh, they do end up in the movie with, uh, I don't know, like about $600,000. And it's implied that they will that they might go off together. Um, how long do you think before she leaves him for some other... I ride? thought she had I, left him th- right there. I didn't think I he was going to see her again. Yeah, this is going to segue seamlessly into the uh, like Sharon Stone-De Niro relationship in Casino. Like She, <laughs> she will stay with him until that money runs out. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is something that's been in a lot of different stories where, like, the like the straight lace guy runs off with the woman or doesn't run off with him. One of the better ones, of course, is, like, Robert Forster and Jackie Brown, who mm-hmm. did right. – he did the whole, like, he played it straight and he seemed like he wasn't really rattled by anything, but it was very dangerous. And he kind of didn't let anything get to him until it was all over. Mm-hmm. And it was also kind of up in the air whether he went with it or not. Well, in the book, he does go off with her, and they – you know, right? Yeah, I mean, you you really want something more like Fish Called Wanda, where, yeah, you know, or uh, Rage in Harlem's another one where they end up together with all the gold and the money. But in this one, like he wakes up and the money's not there, and there's an envelope is down. Like, oh yeah, she's gone. Yeah, yeah, it's like out out of like six hundred thousand, it looked like he had like you know twenty or thirty. And um, as Tim mentioned, uh, you know, in Fish Called Wanda, uh, John Cleese explicitly writes the mega happy ending for uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and John Cleese's characters. You know, like they go to South America, they have like, you know, a dozen kids or whatever. Um, They're leopard yeah. colony. This, yeah, this <laughs> one is like, um, yeah, they go and do good works. Um, I feel like after this movie, they're going to go to Europe or somewhere they're going to live high on the hog for a while. He's going to have a hell of a good time. And then she's going to dump him for, you know, her next meal ticket, which, you know, fine. Yeah, probably like, have connections smart, to the mafia. Yeah. The guy that I, she met while they were living the high life. Yeah. And I hope that he's smart and maybe socks away a little money for when she inevitably dumps him in, you know, it's, uh, aerospace engineer money. He didn't look like he was hurting for anything. Well, That's he can fair. go work for um, he can go work for Airbus. That's in Europe. They like uh, smart young men like him. Yeah, that was the whole. Th- I was wondering. I mean, it seemed kind of like sexless because like Griffin Dunn like wanted Roseanne Arquette in After Hours, and who could blame him? But like yeah, that I whole mean, thing was like all? he was trying to. He was like following her. Like I have to, 
I have to I have to see this through because damn. <laughs> I don't know if Jeff Goldblum was really doing it because damn, it did seem more like a protector relationship. I think he's just glad to be out of the house, which there I isn't really, really much romance <laughs> to it. I know she like kisses his forehead towards it. It's not like a they don't have like a scene where like well, yeah. even after they both see someone like die in front of them, they're like, well, that happened. Yeah, I think the audience sees more Michelle Pfeiffer than he does. Well, that's the thing, because at that moment, like, she's clearly going in for, like, uh, you know, she's she's definitely going to come on to him. And when she is about to kiss him, she realizes that he's snoring. So <laughs> so he finally got his night's sleep. Man, and then, that's, that's all that matters. Yeah, and then she leaves and comes back, and then that's the um, the ambiguously happy ending. All right. Well, Jen, thanks for coming on our podcast. <laughs> This is now the this is now the it's with these two podcast. Here's yes. a fun, here's a here's a funny Tom thing. Like when they're talking about <laughs> Hey Tim, guess who I just got over? <laughs> At the beginning where Dan Aykroyd's like, you should go get some adventure. And I'm like, wow, this is gonna get real gritty. And like the BB King song comes on. I'm like, the only adventure it sounds like he's about to go on is like he's gonna be in a beer commercial. Yeah, yeah. Like it was just it was very like <laughs> Like, what kind of trouble is... That's why I thought this is going to be kind of light. Because the music, the B.B. King... Like, B.B. King's a great loser, but he was in his pop era. And really, right. the music that was yeah. recorded... Well, because it's the 80s. It's just pop music was around. That's what was playing in the background. But even B.B. King's playing, it's not really like a hard-edged blues. It's kind of like his performance on Married with Children, where he was just like the guy in the street. And it's just... It's, he's not in the movie, right? They just film music no. videos and they were... No. They did film um, videos, and Jeff Goldblum and Michelle Pfeiffer were in the band with Steve Martin, Dan Aykroyd, and Eddie Murphy on the drums. What? Oh. Is this a fever dream? No, this yeah. is an actual music video. They did three music videos. Huh. Seal, um, To the Midnight Hour, and Into the Night. Okay. And um, I think, was it Midnight Hour that had all of them in it? One of them is just clips of the movie, and the other one, they're actually like in a club somewhere, and it's B.B. King, and the band is Steve Martin, Dan Aykroyd, and Michelle Pfeiffer on the horns, Eddie Murphy mm -hmm. on the drums, and this is like 1985 Eddie Murphy, so he's like the biggest star of it. Just He just yeah. winks to the camera, and it's like, boom! Just superstar! <laughs> just just at like... the peak of his powers. That might, like Him winking <laughs> in that video might have been more successful than Golden Child and Best Defense combined. That's how like <laughs> big Eddie Murphy was, and Jeff Goldblum, I think, was uh, on the bass or the piano or something, but yeah, they were in now, a video together. I can't think of a better example of someone doing Landis a favor by appearing in a Landis associated project because Eddie Murphy being such a huge star at the time um, and Landis um, kind of dealing with the kind of dealing with the fallout from the Twilight Zone movie um, obviously this would have been Eddie Murphy doing him a huge favor and going by what Eddie Murphy has said in later years he seems to have like a kind of general contempt for Landis. He should. Oh, what's that? That article where he's like, I'm do doing you a favor, but like Landis not realizing it. Yeah, well, because yeah. he wanted to be the alpha on set. So he would like talk shit to people and say, I made Eddie do this and I got to do that. And Eddie was like, you better stop. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's like, I'm doing you a huge fucking favor because no one will touch you. I forget what the article is. Didn't it end up with Eddie actually putting hands on Landis? He lays him out, I believe, right. at one point. That can't oh, be that hard. Oh, yeah, and that was that, uh... You're the fuck you guy, right? <laughs> fuck you, Eddie. 
Fuck you, Eddie. <laughs> Fuck you, Eddie. He, he literally shut him up with his fist at one point because he was too he was talking too much. Right. <laughs> Which doesn't surprise me. Little too alpha. So you watch these music videos, Sean. Were these Landis directed? Do you know? Um, I, mean, I don't the think they clip were. Shows. I know there was like a documentary on the movie that was also tied into B.B. King's music. Right. Directed, but I don't think he directed the music videos. Let's see. He yeah, may have. I'm looking up too. <laughs> I believe he may have. I just get the Benny Mardona song. This song is jamming. It's a funky, funky, inappropriate song. She's just 16 years old. It's a great song. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, I got that on an 80s compilation somewhere. Uh, yeah, there's a documentary film. It's funny. What's the character's name in the movie? Like Eric Oaken? Ed Oaken. Ed Oaken, yeah. And like the documentary is directed by Jeff Oaken. Well, something's uh, he, there. John Landis did direct the documentary, but I don't think he directed the music videos. Let's see. I just got the Wilson Pickett song. That doesn't help. <laughs> A classic. Uh, he did make, he made the My Lucille video. Landis? Yeah, um, Landis, of course, being... So he um, probably directed those as well. It does kind of look like a Blues Brothers like, like musical a performance. It does have that kind of glossy, like, comedy look. There's celebrities playing instruments and, like, in a <laughs> band. So he probably either directed it or advised on it. And it yeah, was because, all in service of his movie, so... Because this is something that has always struck me about John Landis. Like, being as big a fan of Blues Brothers as I am and, like... Um, you know, thinking about some of the other movies he's made, do, does he not strike you as as one of those like white guys who desperately wants to be black? Oh, I, think he he sure he <laughs> I don't think he. I but, think he wanted to be Puerto Rican. Oh, <laughs> but That's you like, know what I? Hat on a hat. Puerto baby. But do you know what I mean? Like somebody, like like a white guy who like writes a lot of like kind of like, like you know, he fucking directed Coming to America. Yeah, no, he he definitely wanted to be. There was no cookouts in the eighties, and there shouldn't be any cookouts now. But I'm sure he <laughs> thought he was invited to the cookout, like where he can say, "I told Eddie Murphy what to do." Like, yeah, I'm, I'm hanging out with the cool blacks, right? I'm and sure he would like be around Arsenio Hall and Robert Townsend and think he was down with the streets. <laughs> yeah, and then he's you know, a fucking you have, tourist. Then yeah. yeah, and then you have the whole blues. Bro mm -hmm. The if you want to talk about tourism, you have the whole blues brothers. Blues thing, brothers is, is... is total wish fulfillment, right? Total exactly. Wish fulfillment. Like, because no, with blues brothers, it's like not only do you get to like be on stage, like playing like all these like great examples of black music, but you're like you also get to hang and you know like the handshakes and shit. Right, like yeah, that. Aretha Franklin. I talked to Aretha Franklin and James Brown. Yeah. Don't you blaspheme in here. Don't you blaspheme in here. He's dropping names. And also, and then he's like, and hey, Paul Mazursky's over there, too. So he's getting it on, on both ends. He's like, yeah, I'm down with the with the the black music culture. I'm down with the, the Hollywood culture. The drug culture is a little danger on, on both sides for me. He thought he was bad. So and he knew what, Michael Jackson. So what we're establishing, then, is that, yeah, is that film directors are dorks who want to be cool. But they're also secretly monsters. Right, yeah. Well, right. in this case, it wasn't so secret. Yeah. I mean, you know, well, the Tarantino thing, like, that maps pretty easily onto the Landis thing. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah, just a, a, a white, you know, 
dorky video store clerk who wants to be black. But all Tarantino did was injure Uma Thurman's back. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm saying, yeah, not, I'm not saying the monster part, but I'm saying, you know, like, the, the, the dork who wants to be cool. Yeah, they also really destroyed, hope- like, a 150-year-old guitar on the Hateful Eight. Well, Kurt Russell did that. Yeah. And oh, to make yeah. the Hateful Eight, too. Hey, I like that movie. Leave the Hateful Eight alone. All right. I, <laughs> I don't want to know if there are any, like, bad stories about, like, Joe Dante or anything like that. I, I don't know. think there are. Well, you'll never, we'll never know. Maybe Phoebe Cates is, uh, maybe all that was like a secret confession, like those stories of Phoebe Cates and like Abraham Lincoln would come up and whatever he did. What did, what did Abraham Lincoln do to Phoebe Cates? I don't, I don't bring up, don't bring up. He presents. fucked her. Yeah, that oh. was, she had one of those like rambling monologues where she got like molested by someone who was dressed as Abraham Lincoln and they were like, all right, don't bring that up right now. Wait, what was this in? It's in Gremlins 2. Oh, 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 oh. Don't yeah, bring yeah, up yeah, Lincoln's yeah. birthday. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. She was like, bring up when she was like a girl and someone came up to her dressed as Abraham Lincoln. And they're like, don't bring that up right now. And I'm like, are they like, are they make a throwaway joke about her being molested by someone who dressed like Abraham Lincoln? It's a very dark digression. I'm confused already. Yeah. I had I had a terrible time at great moments with Mr. Lincoln at Disneyland. I just don't want to talk about it. I didn't yeah. even know that that puppet could do that. <laughs> But like, I, yeah, BB King's blues, like BB King is cool, but BB King's music and that—I mean, he's basically like adult contemporary. Like, he's the blues that was being marketed to like white film directors, people like. But John even Landis. older than John Landis wasn't that old. He was like yeah, older yeah, than him yeah. at that point. Like people that he had in his movie, like Mazursky or Cronenberg, like people like that. Mm-hmm. They right. were marketing BB King more as the adult contemporary blues artist. Like, this is the safe blues. These aren't really about anal sex or anything like that, or like kicking somebody in his stomach with a steel toe shoe. This is just about (laughs) my baby left me and my guitar and something. Oh, so it's country then. Yeah. No, they tried to make blues pop country. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) But I mean, it's B.B. King, so he still put his little thing on there, but he was more palatable palatable that way. Yeah, uh, kind of. Was it trending? into the music and it was like it sounded like a beer commercial and that was a thing in the 80s like eric clapton did the after yeah, yeah. dude i was totally gonna mention eric clapton because i was about to say like thinking like remembering the, the music that eric clapton was putting out at the time like it is very much in that frame that I mean, you was inescapable another one that was big was steve winwood don't you know what the night can do was the yeah. that song was a was a hit song like it was before like this was before like hit songs were automatically jingles. That was like a rare thing. Now, like a song is popular and you hear it in the commercial the next day because someone's liked the song. But like, see when we recorded this song for his album and also like licensed it to Michelob like the same time the song was on the charts. So he had like a hit song that was a beer commercial. Maybe got the cart before the horse. Like, so he's on MTV and like NFL commercials. This is very like, like this is when like, pop culture was inescapable like if something was popular everyone knew about it or heard it right there was more of a monoculture like let's so get the night- in this movie as just like an accident it's like it's not like oh let's get this popular marvin guess it's like this is what was out then and now like that would be like a big music cue and it's just like incidental music playing in the background and it's like <laughs> this very popular song that is now used to sell reese's pe- peanut butter cups I regret to inform the audience that the night has always belonged to Michelob. Has it? Into the <laughs> night, 
Which parentheses belongs to Michelob? <laughs> and pay more donuts. Yeah, right. listen to that one. It's a banger. Um, this one's available, uh, I believe, on streaming and on uh, DVD. Yeah. Don't know about Where, Blu-ray. Wherever fine torrents are downloaded. That, I, that is also true. There's also parts you can see on X videos. That will be the Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, Dee Dee Pfeiffer is in it. Is uh, she's not naked, but she's one of the prostitutes. She's a hooker. <laughs> uh, there are other. There's other nudity uh, featuring my favorite cameo. But it's not really a cameo because he wasn't famous yet. Jake Steinfeld. Body oh, by right. Jake, baby. Well, I was like, Do people who is remember that? Body by Jake. Oh, okay. That's who that guy was. Wasn't Body by Jake yet? Yes. He was just like yeah. a bodybuilder that got the part because Lou Ferrigno was busy. He's a muscular <laughs> henchman. He was a Lou Ferrigno type. Yeah. Yeah. Give me the next Lou Ferrigno. One of the big uh, infomercial exercise guys of the 90s. And I was like, Body by Jake is in this, trying to get his act on. Yeah, I don't, my well, favorite um, cameo is still Pussy Cow, so. It <laughs> wasn't really a cameo, but it was a cameo for me. Like seeing Art Evans as the uh, as the uh, doorman. Like, that's not a celebrity cameo. He's just a guy I know from, uh, he was the father in CD4, and he was uh, Wilkie in A Soldier Story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, and the other doorman is played by, the other doorman is played by Paul Bartell, another director cameo. Paul Bartell, Mall Cop. Um, anything else that we want to say about Into the Night? It's a shitload of cameos. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you want to, if you... Another movie in this, that, like, that did the, uh, the grisly screwball noir thing better, and probably because it was for kids, Adventures in Babysitting. (laughs) Yeah. It worked. Yeah, ultimately, Jen, I think that, uh, it was you that made the point that this was, uh ahead of its time in what you know Tarantino eventually was able to do well. In the same way that our episode on Hudson Hawk, that was the thesis of one of the articles that uh Hudson that you Hawk's went to. Way better. <laughs> well yes. <laughs> no uh, Hudson Hawk rocks. Uh, yeah. I mean come on. I like Jen. Hudson Hawk, but I feel like this one is less scattershot, even though it doesn't hang together entirely. Also, even though he's problematic I will take Jeff Goldblum's underperformance instead of Bruce Willis's unrelenting mugging and quipping. He's a better actor. That's just how it goes. He, right. I mean, I, playing, it, playing it straight is always a safer choice. Doing less is always better than doing too much. Right. Um, do we, so what... I, I don't want to spoil... I mean, do we want to just spoil anything? So that guy just killed himself at the end? Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't write an ending for him. Jeff Goldblum talking about his life that he was like, I can't take this shit. I don't want to be in this hostage situation anymore. And this man's yeah. talking about his aerospace engineer life and his wife cheating <laughs> and how he can't sleep. Oh, I'm going to sleep. Take the big sleep, yeah. Yeah, and he paints Michelle Pfeiffer with his brains. He wasn't mm-hmm. quite cornered yet. It seemed like he had a way out, even though he probably didn't. Yeah, uh, I doubt that. <laughs> I know there was- wasn't as many cops as in Blues Brothers, but it was a lot of cops. There was a point where I was watching it and I was nodding off and Michelle Fiverr said, hey, Sean. And I was like, what the? Because she was talking <laughs> up the games when they had got pulled over and got out of the uh, the Frenchman and his two black henchmen. She just called one of them Sean. And I was like, what the? Was she talking to me? No, Sean. She was speaking to you. It's like, God damn it. Pay attention in the movie. Uh, I did serve coffee to Michelle. Or not coffee. I did uh, popcorn. Sold popcorn to Michelle Fiverr when she came in to see some movie that was playing at the plaza. Oh, nice. She was like, you know, with David E. Kelly. 
That was probably Simple Plan. That's the only movie yeah, I, I can see that, that we played. Or oh, Elizabeth. So, so she was the one who shouted out, Woo! When uh, the wife got <laughs> shot oh, oh, We can start that rumor. Yes, that was. <laughs> that was Michelle Pfeiffer. Again, that's hilarious violence. Right. It's not supposed to be funny. Well, Sam Raimi can do hilarious violence. It was, a, it was such a great Raimi moment. It's yeah. a great Raimi moment. Let's see if there's anything else. Uh, do, so did we figure out if Scorsese stole John Landis's shit or if John Landis found out Scorsese was making this movie and did like his L.A. version before Scorsese finished? I don't know if Landis is a um, is a steal from Scorsese kind of guy. Sinister. He seems more like a he's not Landis is not as lowbrow as Tarantino in terms of his influences. He's more like the kid who is like. Ooh, like I love watching the late movie, you know, when I'm supposed to be in bed. And so they watch all these these old like universal monster movies and stuff like that. Like that's the yeah, that's the kind of nerd he is. Yes, yeah, a dork. Yeah, I'm sure he respects Scorsese, but, you know, he his uh his his uh his stock and trade is a little bit juvenile. So what you're saying right. is the language of like sleazy goings on behind film sets in big cities is universal and they just happen to tell similar stories. <laughs> in the exact same year. I know it's hard to believe. Kind of, it's kind of sleazy, and it's all interconnected in a, in a circle of of grease balls and I mean, splits and imagine if that came to light. What a revelation! I mean, like all you have to do is look at the you know the Bob Woodward um, John Belushi biography Wired, and that movie that that movie that book opens with uh you know uh, Belushi like you know, just like out of his mind and on whatever he was taking, you know, speedballs or whatever. And, you know, Landis trying to corral him to the set for Blues Brothers. You know, it, it is like a depraved industry. It's it's pretty depraved. Oh, yeah. And I mean, just like not only that, but just, you know, the scenes of L.A. at night and remembering like when we used to go out and do stuff like how I miss that. Ugh. I don't really remember. Yeah, like, do you, do you remember the night when we were at Mel's drive-thru in Mel's, Hollywood? Yeah, it was like just 5.30 in the morning, hammered. and we were both still... Yes, we were still yeah. drunk at 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> yeah, because we were at, at Mel's in Hollywood, like, still, like, just unbelievably drunk off our asses, not cognizant that it was, um like, the, the time change had gone on. So we lost an hour... <laughs> Yeah, so like the bars had closed, but like we're still hammered, tr- just fucking trying and failing to order breakfast, just yeah, trying to get our head I together wanted- and being like, it's 4.30. And I would be wasted at like 2 a.m. and then it would be 1 a.m. again and then I would get more wasted and then I would fall asleep off. with my face on the toilet seat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or just finding yourself in Silver Lake somehow. Honestly, someone should make a movie out of your experience with Four Loco, Tim. Oh, man. Yeah, that is one magical evening. Yeah. They did go by the airport a couple times. We have to shout out Sepulveda! Sepulveda! <laughs> I would well, bet heavily on that. Well, heavily on Sepulveda. Always. <laughs> Pico and Sepulveda. Pico and Sepulveda. Pico and Sepulveda. Yeah. Bet on Pussy Cow. <laughs> Mr. Cat, <Yeah. laughs> I'm fucking your shit over here. Won't hop in. All right, shut this motherfucker down. <laughs>